I was 19 years old, and I was approached on the trail. And Dr. John Martin said, do you want to know if you're going to have diabetes in the future? It was 1989, and for Carlotta Toulousey and the indigenous people of the Havasupai tribe, diabetes was becoming a serious threat. I automatically said yes. Roll up your sleeve, please. This won't hurt. And I went in, got my blood taken, and after they take that blood, they flew it out in the helicopter and brought it four and a half hours down to Arizona State University. It was an offer proposed to all 650 members of the Havasupai tribe. What they couldn't have known was their blood was going to be used for much more than diabetes research. In fact, researchers used it however they liked, including in ways that went against the tribe's wishes and beliefs. And to this day, I don't know whether or not I'm prone to diabetes. I'm Shaleen Gupta, and this is Tristonomy, an original podcast from One Trust. In each episode, we examine stories from the past, moments when companies and organizations broke that crucial element, trust. These are fascinating and sometimes tragic stories, but they also show us how businesses and organizations can do better today. We're learning how to build and repair the superpower of trust. This time, we're examining how a study at Arizona State University broke an already fragile trust with the Havasupai tribe. Biological data is the most private and personal information you can collect. And getting proper consent and protecting privacy is especially important when we're talking about marginalized groups with cultural beliefs different than your own. I think cultural beliefs are actually super important foundation for how you build your privacy program and how you build consent. That is Linda Tialova. We'll hear more from her later. But first, who are the Havasupai? The rocks surround my village. They are over a thousand feet. And the upper layer is white mesa. So when the sun comes up, it hits the mesa. And it comes down slowly and lights up the village. Carlotta Tulusi is a member of the Havasupai tribe. She said, My name is Carlotta Tulusi. I'm from Havasu Canyon. And the story I share with you today hopefully makes an imprint on your memory. Carlotta's village is located on the west side of the Grand Canyon. It is incredibly remote. People can only arrive by helicopter, horseback, or a long hike in. But it's worth the trek. In fact, her land is famous for its incredible turquoise waterfalls. We are known for our beautiful waterfalls that runs through our canyon. Our water eventually turns into the color blue-green. And that is what we are named after. Havasu Baja means people of the blue-green water. More than 300 tribal members still live on the reserve in the canyon today. In pre-colonial times, the tribe roamed a vast area of 1.6 million acres, about the size of Delaware, 
they hunted game and thrived by growing corn, melons, squash, and beans. But that prosperity came to a halt when pioneers discovered silver on their land. In the late 19th century, President Chester Arthur claimed the vast majority of the Havasupai's land for the American public. Settlers arrived, game was depleted, and smallpox and measles ravaged the Havasupai. Then, in 1903... Theodore Roosevelt saw the Grand Canyon for the first time and felt that it was important to preserve this area and made a government action to make it a Grand Canyon National Park, which caused the livelihood and the cycle of my people to change drastically. Within a few years, the tribe was forced off of their land and moved to an area in the canyon much smaller than their original territory. And the lack of agricultural and hunting land had a very concrete impact on their health. People's lifestyle and diet changed drastically. And that's how we became prevalent to diabetes. By the late 1980s, more than 50% of Havasupai adults were suffering from type 2 diabetes. To put that in perspective, the U.S. national average at that time was only 5%. Diabetes was now an epidemic for the Havasupai. And its impact on the community was serious. Kidney failure is a common outcome of diabetes. If that happens, a patient requires dialysis several times a week to remove fluid and waste from their blood. Carletta's village doesn't have the capacity to run a dialysis clinic. So when people develop diabetes, they're often forced to leave the reserve. When Carletta's stepmom was diagnosed with diabetes, she was forced to leave too. Leaving her home, leaving her gardens, leaving all her friends, and moving into another community, I believe, was the hardest for her. And she passed away in 2001. You know, diabetes has increased over the years. I think 2023, there's a lot of us that are battling with it right now. Diabetes was already an issue among the Havasupai in the 1960s, when Dr. John Martin, a professor at Arizona State University, developed a good relationship with the tribe. But it wasn't until 1989 that tribal leaders asked him what could be done about the health crisis. Martin suspected their diabetes was caused by a combination of diet and genetics. So he asked genetics professor Therese Marco to work with him on the study. The first step was to collect blood samples. But Dr. Marco wanted to use the Havasupai's blood samples to conduct other research as well. So she applied for funding. Marco decided to write her own grants without the knowledge of Dr. John Martin. And that's where the whole process crumbled beneath them. From 1990 to 1992, hundreds of Havasupai people gave their blood to researchers at Arizona State University. Soon after, it became clear to Dr. Martin that diabetes was spreading too quickly in the Havasupai population to be caused by genetics. The rationale for all those blood samples was gone. That might have been the end of the story. But then, in 2003, during Carletta's last semester of college at Northern Arizona University... I saw Dr. John Martin walking on campus, and he goes, oh, by the way, there's a dissertation that you might be interested in listening to. And it's about Havasupai 
blood samples being utilized for a study. And I said, okay, well, I'll be there. When Carletta arrived, the lecture hall was packed and a PhD student was already speaking. The student was studying the DNA structure of an African community and compared it with the Havasupai DNA structure and then also compared it with a primate. Carletta didn't understand the technical aspects of the study, but she quickly figured out that it had nothing to do with diabetes. When the student finished his presentation, there was a question period. And I asked if he had received permission from the tribe and also permission from the individuals to do this study. And he said no. And they ended the dissertation and asked me to go with them into a separate room. And that's when Carletta met Dr. Marco for the first time. There was a lot of tension in the air. There was a lot of back and forth about consent forms. And Marco and Martin were yelling at each other at some point. And I called the leader of my tribe and I said, I think there's an issue here that you really need to know. A subsequent investigation determined that the Havasupai blood samples had in fact been used by Arizona State University and other institutions for two dozen research projects, none of which had anything to do with diabetes. These included studies on schizophrenia and inbreeding, very taboo subjects for the Havasupai. But perhaps the greatest betrayal here was that research had been conducted into the tribe's origins. Their blood samples were used to argue that their ancestors had migrated from Asia by walking across the Bering Sea land bridge. We were taught that we were created in northern Arizona, on the rims of the Grand Canyon. And so that study in particular affected our minds, really, our main existence of who we are. And that goes against our own creation stories. And as the report was being read, you can hear weeping in the room, weeping from our tribal leaders, weeping from our elders. They felt so violated. What had begun as an earnest examination of the Havasupai's diabetes, which was itself the result of colonial theft and betrayal, had led to yet another betrayal. The more I found out, I felt like I was a specimen. And I still feel like I'm a specimen. Carletta had given her own blood to the researchers and agreed to participate in the diabetes study. But she never signed a consent form. Some members of the tribe did sign a consent form, but it was incredibly broad. It claimed the blood could be used to, quote, study the causes of behavioral slash medical disorders. This language was vague a problem that was further compounded because English is a second language for most tribal members, few of whom graduated from high school. So how do you interpret behavioral disorders? How do we interpret that? The only thing that was approved by the tribe was to study diabetes. When the blood samples were obtained, we weren't explained properly what our blood samples were going to be used for. It was obvious to Carletta that her people's rights had been ignored. After speaking with Havasupai tribal leaders, they decided to file a lawsuit. 
It argued that Arizona State University did not receive proper consent from the Havasupai and violated their privacy. The scope of the wrongdoing was broad and included issues that researchers likely never considered. For Carletta and her tribe, the primary goal of the lawsuit was to get their blood samples back. In the Havasupai religion, when a person dies, every part of their body will be buried with them so that their spirit can transition into the spirit world. If part of their body is here, in this world, in a lab, our belief says that their soul will never rest. So our lawsuit was not revolved around money. The people that had gave blood who had deceased, we tried to make them whole again. And it wasn't easy. Finally, in 2010, seven years after the investigation and 20 years after the blood samples were taken, Arizona State University agreed to pay $700,000 to 41 tribe members. More importantly, they returned 151 blood samples. The elders decided to rebury them at our sacred mountain. And we did it very early in the morning before the sun came up. And so we believe that once we bury them, then they go with the sunrise. Doing something like that in the side of a mountain with pinyon trees and sage brushes all over and just the smell of the early morning and songs being sung, you'll never forget that. But when trust is broken, there are always scars. Closure is not an easy thing to find. Blood samples were only returned if there was a record that someone had given blood. In the years between the study and the lawsuit, some records were lost, so many people never got their blood back. We buried an empty box for the individuals that did not receive their blood samples back. And that was me. I was one of them. You can almost hear the trust crumbling can't you? Linda Tilova is the Global Data Protection Officer and Head of Privacy Center of Excellence at OneTrust. And when she heard Carletta's story, she saw a series of big red flags. Somehow nobody questioned the ethics of exposing this very sensitive information about a group of people. The researchers zoned in on what they were pursuing as scientists and they never looked up to consider the real-life impact of what they were doing. Today, the number of companies and organizations that rely on data gathered from the public is only expanding. But do we know how to safeguard that data? It's about so much more than the right tech and following the letter of the law. The laws that we have to follow when it comes to privacy they're actually built around a lot of principles. So they're telling us to make sure that we are incorporating transparency into what we're doing and thinking about privacy when we're starting a project or when we're onboarding a new vendor or when we're collecting data. Getting your privacy compliance right is sometimes seen as a hassle or a roadblock, but we forget about the powerful long-term benefits. You start 
building a relationship with the people whose data you have. And you can actually gain business value from that because people who trust you are more likely to be your customers and they're more likely to share more information with you. Taking data without proper consent or failing to guard it is the surest way to turn off the very people whose data you rely on. And that's especially true with biological data, like the Havasupai's blood samples. That is the type of information which is so unique to you. If somebody steals your password, well, yeah, you can get a new one, but what are you going to do if they misuse your blood samples? The work Linda's describing really begins and ends with consent. But consent on its own isn't enough. It has to be informed consent. Does the customer, or in this case, a research participant, understand what they're handing over? The bar for consent is even higher when we're talking about biodata like blood samples. In some cases, the researchers at Arizona State University were relying on oral consent. Many Havasupai, including Carletta, say they weren't given a written consent form at all. And if your business does that, you are tainting your project right out of the gate. The fact that the ASU researchers used oral consent, that just gives me privacy compliance goosebumps because like the burden rests on you to prove that you have ticked all the boxes in informing the person you are more likely than not not processing the data lawfully. So that is very dangerous because suddenly you have this large poison data set that you might actually rely on, for example, for those research purposes. Those who did receive a written consent form signed something incredibly broad. As we heard earlier, the consent form said that the blood samples could be used to study the causes of behavioral slash medical disorders. It gave ASU researchers carte blanche to study almost anything they wanted. But real consent requires transparency and it requires you to be specific. It just blows my mind, frankly, how the transparency gap kept increasing. They never said how long or for which specific projects they'll be using the blood samples. If the people don't know what they're consenting to, there is no transparency. Only those relationships which have transparency in them can be fully trusting relationships. We're starting to see that consent isn't cut and dry. It's something you have to proactively design and build. And that means meeting subjects where they are. In the case of the Havasupai, written consent forms in English may have been inadequate because English is a second language for many tribal members. Which is something I can heavily relate to. Scientific language expects quite a high tier of understanding. And that's something that is not a given for non-English speaker and maybe someone who isn't university educated. You have to go the extra mile to bridge that gap and to present it in a very comprehensible manner. This doesn't just apply to extreme cases like gathering blood from a historically disadvantaged tribe. Every business should customize consent communication to all different groups they interact with. I think that's one thing that businesses get wrong, they have this sort of template language and it just can't be copy-pasted across all relationships and all use cases. Additionally, 
Consent often requires multiple check-ins, especially if the parameters of your work change over time. Companies can assume one piece of text or communication is enough to create transparency and to inform the typical person of what they need to know to get consent. It's never enough for sensitive type of data to just have one touch point. If the researchers at Arizona State had taken consent more seriously, they may have avoided a related problem, violations to the Havasupai's privacy. Their blood samples were used to produce studies on incest and schizophrenia, sensitive and stigmatizing topics. Researchers likely thought because no names were attached to these studies, they had taken sufficient measures to protect individual tribal members from negative associations and anonymize the Havasupai's personal data. But it wasn't enough. If you don't have a good understanding of which subset of your data actually qualifies as personal data, you're in trouble. It's not enough to consider individual identifiers. You also need to consider indirect or group identifiers. Remember, every blood sample was drawn from a single indigenous tribe with a population of less than a thousand. If a group is so small, then the data, it is according to more and more laws globally, almost being considered personally identifying information. And so even though they never really shared specific identifiers like people's names, the fact that you are a tribe member means that it's very easy to pin all of the research findings onto you. In other words, group data becomes personal data when the sample size is small and lacks diversity. Therefore, privacy is endangered even if names and other traditional personal identifiers are hidden. If you are identified as a member of the group, any inferences for that group will automatically be pinned on you. So you are no longer just a number. Linda's point is not theoretical. The California Consumer Privacy Act defines information tied to an entire household as personal information. They recognize that cross-referencing sets of seemingly anonymous data can expose details about individuals. In the Havasupai's case, no cross-referencing was required. The set of data was so homogenous and small that every tribal member was now associated with taboo subjects against their will. That means that this is not just your regular run-of-the-mill privacy data breach, but you are dealing with a major impact. Emotional harm is more of a cultural and spiritual violation. You are dealing with a breach of trust on the individual level, but you are also dealing with a breach of trust of a whole tribe in the context of the colonialist history. The consequences of betraying trust with the Havasupai were obviously huge, but protecting privacy doesn't have to be complicated. If you are following one rule for privacy clients, you want to make sure that you're not doing something that the individuals, if they found out about it, 
they would be unpleasantly surprised what you're doing with their data. Linda suggests using a privacy impact assessment, or a PIA, to think through any data collection you do. A PIA defines what kind of data you're gathering, why you are gathering it, and how you're using it. It's also a way to discover potential risks in advance. And it's an ongoing commitment. You are supposed to revisit your privacy impact assessments regularly just to check if there is potential difference between what you set out to do and what you're actually doing with data. A good PIA can save everyone a lot of grief, but it has to be done proactively. That means gathering input from actual stakeholders. In this case, the PIA would require you to have somebody like a representative of the Havasupai tribe actually read the project outline and confirm throughout the PIA process that they actually understand the consent the same way you understand it. You need that diversity because otherwise you're blind to those weak spots. What Linda's describing when she talks about the importance of informed consent and privacy is really a kind of caretaking. You do not, as a business, own someone else's data. People own their own data. You've only been entrusted with it. Businesses are basically stewards for the data. They have obligations that they need to comply with. And the people, as the owners, are the ones who should be reaping benefits from their data usage, from them giving away the data, enabling the businesses to use it. Around the world, laws have begun to reflect that attitude. But building consent and privacy into data collection is about much more than legal compliance. Having a high bar for privacy and consent in a company means that you are able as a business to really build trust. So could be you get more data from them, could be you get longer relationships with them. But the bottom line is you are building meaningful relationships with the people whose data you have. When the Havasupai settled their lawsuit with ASU, the New York Times reported that it was the first time individuals had been paid for the misuse of their DNA. The value of personal data is changing. So being a trustworthy steward of that data is more important than ever. Carletta and her tribe have shown that people are rightfully starting to demand it. We don't want other indigenous groups to go through what we went through and the distrust that we had to go through. But also it united my family. It united my community to be strong together and have one voice. Informed consent and privacy are the pillars of data stewardship. The story of the Havasupai teaches us that you need to explicitly state what data you're collecting, how it's being used, and confirm that both are understood by everyone involved. You also need to consult with data stakeholders to ensure you don't have any privacy blind spots. As we just heard, what constitutes personal data and a breach of privacy can be more complicated than you think. But when you prioritize consent and privacy, you build trust with stakeholders, gather better information, safeguard your company, and most importantly, 
Protect those who gave you their data. I'm Shaleen Gupta, and this is Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Thanks for listening. <laughs>